Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Romans 8, 31, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, all, for us all, how will we, he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who is to condemn Christ? Oh, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Trinity. Good morning. I, uh, I want to say thank you. I wasn't expecting um, that expression of appreciation, so thank you for that. And I really will say it's been a wonderful summer with you guys. I've enjoyed... Going through Romans 6 to 8, I've enjoyed meeting the staff and some of the community group leaders, some of the elders, deacons. Um, it's, been, it's been fun. And I uh, sincerely want to tell Eric um, some of the really positive things I found about your church. It's been a, I, I mentioned to some friends in the midst of all the struggles of churches and pastors in the pandemic that... Uh, Despite it all, there are, some, there are some good churches. There are some healthy churches that are doing good things. And so um, please understand that I, I recognize you as one of those. Well, um, we've been looking at Romans 6 to 8, and we come to the end of that section. We've been saying that there has been a transfer, a regime change that we have moved from. We've got a little chart here. We were dead to sin. Now we are alive to God. We were slaves of sin. Now we are slaves of righteousness. We were dead to, the, dead to the law. Now we are married to Jesus. We were under law. Now we are under grace. We were in the flesh. Now we are in the spirit. In Romans 8, then Paul talks a fair bit about what life in the spirit is about and he tells us that the spirit that is in us is the spirit of adoption. And because we've been adopted, we are heirs. And then Paul says that we are heirs, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. And in introducing this topic of Christian suffering, he then points out we have all these resources. We have our future glory. We have the intercession of the Spirit. We have the purpose and providence of God to work all things that we might become more like Jesus. Well, Paul kind of wraps up his thoughts today as he asks, what then shall we say to these things? 
given that we're in a whole new world, given that God is working for our future glory, that we would become Christ-like, given all these things, what shall we say? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If this is God's plan and purpose, if this is how he's working, if this is what he's done for us, who's going to stop God? We have been given so much. We have become so much. We have so much ahead of us. God is on our side. God is for us. God loves us. What's your response? What, what happens when you think about that? Maybe some of us want to say, amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. That's right. Hallelujah. But my guess is for some of us, if we're honest, maybe all of that feels a little bit hollow. Not so inspiring. Maybe even like a cheap Christian cliche. God loves you. Like the kind of a, almost a throwaway phrase. Because the truth is, God's love doesn't always feel so real. God's love has not changed our lives. Maybe, maybe we doubt whether God really loves us. Well, in this last piece of Romans 8, Paul gives us this rich, beautiful passage where he is trying to persuade us, trying to assure us. He's not just trying to tell us that it's true. He is trying to deepen our faith that we would have conviction, that we would have assurance of God's love. And then at the end, he just kind of goes off. <laughs> he gets a little excited. He gets excited sometimes. And it just it just turns into this, this climax of pronouncing and celebrating God's love. In our passage, Paul, I think, addresses two main reasons for why we might doubt God's love. The first problem is from within, that we see our sin and our guilt. We see our failures, and when we do, we struggle to believe whether God would really love us. We don't feel all that lovable. I mean, maybe on good days when we're coming to church and, you know, trying to follow the Lord, we feel a little more lovable. But there are plenty, maybe too many days when we feel we are not. Maybe there are some things in the past that haunt us, things we deeply regret, things that we are ashamed of. Maybe, uh, maybe we've had some habits, and we just can't stop, and we feel so defeated. We feel like a failure. Or maybe we've done or said things to our kids, to our spouses, to our friends, that we would do anything to take back. Maybe during the pandemic, all that anxiety, all being just locked in together, didn't bring out the best sides of you. Maybe you weren't an easy person to live with for a while. 
for whatever reason, we all have things that we feel guilty about, and we wonder, like, have we come to the end of God's patience? Has he had enough after all we've done? And in moments when maybe we see the darkness of our hearts, yeah, it can be hard to believe that God really loves us, loves us, loves us. What does Paul say? Verses 33, 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul starts, who who will bring a charge? Who will accuse us? And maybe some of us chime in pretty quickly and say, well, actually, there are a lot of people who accuse us. I mean, Satan accuses us. I've got a list of people who pretty much are happy to accuse me of all sorts of things. And perhaps most profoundly, I accuse myself. My conscience accuses me plenty. C.S. Lewis says, to, for, to believe in the forgiveness of sins is not nearly so easy as I thought. So how does Paul respond? Paul says, notice the language, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? He's saying, hey, if you've put your trust in Jesus, it's because God chose you first. He chose you. This ties into what we saw last time. Just a few verses earlier, Paul was saying that those God elected, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. In other words, God had a plan. He chose us. He declares us righteous. And he makes us righteous. And if that's what God is doing, if that's God's purpose, God's plan, God's salvation project, who's going to stop God? Who's going to stop like, Seriously, who can stop God? If that's what God wants to do, if God is for us, who can be against us? You see, Paul is pointing not so much to our forgivableness, our, our charm, <laughs> our virtue, something, something good about us. Instead, he points to this is, this is God's grace. This is God's purpose, God's power, God's doing, and God doesn't fail. God doesn't give up. God doesn't mess up. God cannot, will not fail. It is God who justifies. And then Paul points to four things that Christ has done for us. It says, he died for us. He already took the punishment of our sins. On the cross, he paid for it all. There is no punishment left for us. Even the U.S. judicial system, double jeopardy is not allowed. You can't be punished twice for the same thing. He died for us. Secondly, he was raised to life, showing that when Jesus died, he fully satisfied the penalty of our sin and showed his own righteousness so that he vindicates himself. He he proves that his, his death was payment in full. He was raised to life. Third, he is at the right hand of God. He isn't just raised from the dead. He is risen and exalted in a position of power and authority. 
sitting at the right hand of God. And what is he doing sitting at the right hand of God? It says, number four, he is interceding for us. He is praying for us. Last time we saw that the Spirit intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. But it doesn't end there with just the Spirit praying. Now Christ himself is praying. Christ at the right hand of the Father. I mean, just picture, you know, Christ in his glory, turning to God the Father, saying, Father, Father, please. Though they've sinned plenty, look not at their sin. I've taken their sin. Look at my righteousness. I've given them my righteousness. Regard them as you regard me. That that is what the, that's the son interceding to the father on our behalf. Paul is saying, look at what Christ has done for you. He died for you, rose for you. He prays for you. You are God's chosen. You are no longer condemned. Little Johnny was visiting his grandparents on a farm, and uh, grandfather gave him a little toy slingshot. Little Johnny's just a little kid. He's so excited. Ooh, this is so cool. He runs out into the woods, grabs little pebbles, you know, tries to hit that tree, tries to hit that rock, just has fun. But it's a clunky toy, you know, it's not like a very precise instrument. After a while of playing around, he comes back to the farmhouse. And he notices grandma's pet duck. And I don't know why. Little boys, what goes through their minds is a mystery to many of us as parents. But for some reason, he picks up a rock, puts it in the slingshot, and shoots. And to his utter amazement, he hits the duck. And the duck just falls over. He runs over, looks at the duck, and sure enough, the duck is dead. He is horrified. This wasn't supposed to happen. He didn't think it was really going to happen. He could have hit other things. He kind of pulls it aside, covers it with some leaves, twigs. And as he rises, he sees his big sister standing in the yard. Doesn't say a word. Well, at lunch, as they were finishing up, Grandma says, So, Sally, why don't you uh, help me with the dishes? And, and then Sally perks up real quick and says, Dad, Grandma... You know, Johnny was telling me that he'd like to help with the dishes today. And he turns to little Johnny and under her breath says, remember the duck. Little Johnny helplessly says, uh, yeah, Grandma, um, I can help with the dishes today. Later in the afternoon, Grandpa says, all right, kids, let's go fishing. Anyone want to go fishing? And before they could say anything, Grandma says, oh, I needed Sally to help me get supper ready. And then Sally quickly perks up and says, oh, Grandma, actually, Johnny was telling me how he'd like to help get supper ready. And that, like, if we're going to do anything, that, that I should probably go. Isn't that right, Johnny? <laughs> Remember the duck. Well, after several days of doing all of his chores and all of Sally's chores, he could take it no more. Little Johnny, like, literally shaking, comes up to Grandma. And says, Grandma, uh, I'm uh, so, uh, <laughs> it was an accident. It wasn't supposed to happen. I killed your duck. <laughs> Grandma gets on his knee, her knees, holds his hand, looks him in the eye and says, Johnny, I know. I saw the whole thing from the kitchen window. <laughs> 
Johnny, I love you. I forgave you. I was just wondering how long you would let Sally make a slave out of you. I was just wondering how long you will let Sally make a slave out of you. Just wondering how long the one who could accuse you is the one who loves you, who loves you, who gave himself for you, who says you are no longer a slave to fear. You are my beloved son, my beloved daughter. How long will you let Sally make a slave out of you? If you're exploring Christianity, this is the good news, that despite our many flaws and failures, sins and mess-ups, there is a God who forgives, a God who prays for you, a God who loves you. The other reason why we may doubt God's love comes from outside, that we go through hardships and trials. It doesn't feel like God loves us. I mean, I think we all struggle with this from time to time. How could a loving God allow so much pain and suffering, even death? How could he allow these things in our lives? I mean, it feels like, God, where are you? What are you doing? This is your love? This isn't love. This is cruel. And then if it happens to our loved ones, to our children, to our families, like, God, how how could you? Don't you care? Especially during the pandemic, I, it's just hard to comprehend the magnitude of the loss in our city, in our nation, in the world, especially amongst the poor, the vulnerable, those with less resources. Add to that, in Paul's context, he's actually addressing Christian persecution. That Christians are being imprisoned, sometimes martyred. Paul lists tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And for Paul, these are not just, oh, maybe in the world this can happen. No, these are things that happen to him. These are things that happen to the Christians around him. These are not theoretical, hypothetical possibilities. There is real suffering. There is real persecution. Where does God's love fit there? Add to that, Paul then quotes Psalm 44. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's saying, hey, God's people have always faced hardships, have always faced troubles, always faced death. There's always been suffering for God's people. In other words, this is not a trite passage. 
I mean, if you were to write to the persecuted church in North Korea and Afghanistan, what would you say? Because that is what Paul is doing here. He is addressing real Christians going through real persecution. So how do we know, Mr. Paul, that God loves us even then? Well, first, Paul appeals to reason. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul is making an argument from the greater to the lesser. Look, if God has done this, he, he has given you his son, then anything else is small pickings. I mean, that's easy stuff. That's, that's so, that he's already done this much for you. You think he's not going to take care of the rest? If someone during the pandemic comes and brings you a meal, I don't know, you know, during the pandemic, meal trains, I've seen a lot of meal trains. Someone comes and brings you a meal and you say, oh, I'm sorry, could you grab the, grab the mail from the mailbox as you come in? You think they're going to say, you want me to bring in your mail? What, you think they're going to protest? I mean, they brought you a meal. Sure, we'll grab the mail as we come in the house. Like, I'm willing to do this. Of course I'll do that. If someone is willing to, like, donate their organ to you, you think they wouldn't visit you in the hospital? I mean, come on. Think of, I mean, unless they can't, you know, like, they're in the hospital too. But if they were able, you think, like, if they're going to donate their organ, they wouldn't visit you in the hospital? Of course. Of course. A couple of weeks ago, I met um, this person who used to live in San Diego. Uh, had friends. Uh, the friend is planning a church in the Inland Empire. And here's this woman. She doesn't know anybody in the Inland Empire. She packs up everything and moves to the Inland Empire to help her friend plant a church. You think she's going to say, you want me to bring a dish to the potluck? Why, why are you asking that of me? You want me to set up the chairs? She moved to the Inland Empire to help you. Of course, of course. Right? Paul is making the argument, if he has given you his son, I mean, what do you think? You think he's stingy? <laughs> you think he's, he like, he's unwilling? He has already shown you his commitment. He has already shown you his sacrificial love. What, you think he's, he's going to forget you? Hasn't he proven to you? that he will do anything for you. Secondly, Paul discounts present suffering. For us, we look at our present sufferings and it causes us, God, do you really love us? Do you even care? But what we take as grounds for questioning God's love, Paul, Paul takes as a given. He says, of course we'll suffer. God's people, Psalm 44, have always suffered. Jesus suffered. Christians suffer. Suffering is normal. Now, admittedly, the pandemic is a once-in-a-lifetime catastrophe. But the world has always been broken. There has always been pain, always been suffering. Christian suffering, that's the norm. 
That's the new. I think we live in an American world where we think suffering is somehow abnormal. I think Paul is saying, no, suffering, that's normal. That's the broken world we live in. That is the road of the people of God. Instead of focusing on present suffering, notice where Paul turns. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God the Father. <coughs> He's to his third response. What Paul focuses on is Jesus' death and resurrection. He says, you want to see God's love, don't look at your present circumstances, look at Jesus. A few chapters earlier in Romans, he says, but God shows his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we least deserved it, look at the cross, he died, not because you were a good churchgoer, but because you were a sinner. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He died. He rose from the dead. He is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. Look at Jesus. Look at what he's done. And then fourthly, Paul points us to our future glory. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Yes, there's present suffering. Yes, there's present suffering. But I want to focus you on your future glory. The purpose and the providence of God in conforming you to the image of Christ. Paul is looking to the day when God will make all things new, all of creation, the brokenness of our world will be restored. Even our bodies will be transformed and we will be made gloriously like Jesus. In other words, Paul, <coughs> Paul points us to this grand salvation story. Jesus died, he rose, he is at the Father's hand praying for you. We are his elect, called, justified, glorified, and that glory is what creation even longs to see. We have been transferred from one dominion to another. We are now dead to sin. We are alive to God. We are no longer under law. We are under grace. There is a whole new world. Paul says, look at that. Look at this cosmic, redemptive, grand salvation story. This is so much bigger than the sufferings we face today. And nothing, nothing can stop, thwart, hinder, mess up God's grand salvation story. This is God's love for you. And then at the end of the passage, Paul, I know sometimes it looks like I can get a little bit excited, but I, I, I'm just trying to bring out the text here because I think Paul is legit excited. Like he is just, 
he's not stoically writing these things, you know, well, theologically speaking, I do believe in the love of God's faithfulness and his grand redemptive. No, no, no. Paul, I see him like, he's getting like up out of his chair and he's like, I'm here to testify, people, that our God is a loving God. I am not death, not life, not the present, not the future, not powers, not angels, demons, heaven. Nothing, people. Ain't nothing. No, I mean, I... We're not in an African-American church, but I, I met some African-American church planners, and they're like, oh, my, mm, preach it. That's right. You know, I mean, amen, amen. I mean, that's what I see happening in the heart of Paul. Paul is excited, and he is so emphatic. There ain't nothing, 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 nothing. Not money, not poverty, not health, not sickness, not atheism or materialism, not science or philosophy, not political parties or politicians, not capitalism or communism, not climate change or pandemics, nothing, nothing, nothing. There is nothing that will separate God's love for you. Well, some might say, well, what about me? What if, what if I walk away? What if I rebel? What if I become unfaithful? I think Paul's answer, no, <laughs> not even you. You ain't that powerful. <laughs> this is like the purpose of God. You think you're going to, you're not that strong. You can't, there is nothing you can do to make God love you less. There is nothing you can do to make God love you less. It was never about what you do. It was always about the nature, magnitude, power, goodness of our God. There is nothing anyone can do to mess up this grand salvation story for us. In fact, I think what Paul is saying is in the hard times, in the troubles, in the persecution, when we feel we may question God, we may doubt God, we may, our faith may waver. We may feel like we want to run away and fall away. It is in this context that Paul says, no, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. <coughs> in other words, I think he's saying God's love will hold you. God's love will empower you so that you do not fall away, so that you will endure Indeed, you will conquer. Indeed, you will more than conquer. What's that mean? More than conquer. I think the suggestion here is not only that our sufferings and persecution will not defeat us. Not only will we endure but our sufferings, instead of pulling us away from Christ, will actually be used by God to make us more like Christ. That what was meant to harm us is actually going to help us 
be more glorified. That we will be ever more conformed to the image of Christ through our suffering. Now, how can Paul speak from such conviction? I, I like what? What is this? How, how, he, he's just nothing, 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 nothing. Separate us from the love of God. More than conquerors. I mean, what, what's gotten into this guy? In Romans 8, Paul has been talking about life in the Spirit. And we've been saying that what the Spirit does is it helps us recognize, apprehend, perceive, taste. It's like not just saying, oh, coffee tastes good. It's getting the fresh ground, pour-over, brewed coffee. It's like getting the, the, the plain tart froyo, and you get to taste it. Like we experience. Experience God's love. It says the spirit is a spirit of adoption. So that something intuitively and instinctively within us cries out, Daddy, Daddy. Like we know somehow that we're his child. That he's our father. And we can approach him as our father. That we intuitively are persuaded that we're part of his family. That we're beloved. How do we know God loves us? I think Paul is saying we look at the cross. We look at the resurrection. We look at Jesus. We look at this grand salvation story. And then the spirit says, Jesus didn't just die for the world. Jesus died for me. Jesus isn't just going to bring us all to glory. Jesus is going to glorify me. It's not that God has lots of children. It's that I, I am his dearly loved, fully embraced, delight of his eyes, never to be forsaken, son, daughter. The spirit persuades us, helps us taste that these things are true and true for me. For you. And so Paul urges us, live by the Spirit. Live according to the Spirit. This is what the Spirit wants to do. Is groaning for, for you. Why is this so important? Paul is spending a lot of energy trying to persuade us, trying to assure us. Why? I'd like to suggest because this assurance is what moves things from our heads to our hearts. This assurance transforms theology into worship. It changes things from something to think about to something to sing about. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of the Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story. This is my song. 
praising my Savior all the day long. That's why we must have assurance. And then one more reason. I think in the context of Christian suffering, Paul is trying to persuade us of God's love that we would persevere. That we would not give up. That we would endure. It would strengthen us for the troubles that we face. For Paul, it is not that present sufferings disprove God's love. Rather, it is the assurance of God's love that enables us to endure our present sufferings. Let me say that one more time. For Paul, it is not that our present sufferings disprove God's love. Rather, it is the assurance of God's love that enables us to endure our present sufferings. And so he labors to assure us. See, assurance is not this optional, oh, wouldn't that be nice kind of part of the Christian life. No, it is the engine. It is the foundation of living in the Spirit. This is what the Christian life is supposed to look like. That we find rest, security, strength, sweetness, and joy in the love of God, especially in the hard times. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, surely we, uh, we all have our different trials, our different struggles. We all have our doubts and our fears. And sometimes we hear Sally accusing us. Remember the duck. But Lord, we pause to remember the grand salvation story. You died. You pray for us. You will give us a glory that will make all our present suffering seem so small. You have given us your spirit. So that we would not just know in our minds, but sing in our souls that nothing, 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 nothing will separate us from your love. Lord, may we taste that. May your spirit hug us even now, assuring us and filling our souls with a song that we might celebrate your love even in troubled times. In Christ's name we pray.